gets me every time, that video, just the, how accurate the cartoonist was for where we are today. We talked last week about checking your vertical and how much horizontal chatter we have in the culture, how hard it is for us to determine what's good, what's right, what direction should I go, because there's so much horizontal chatter. And we're so tuned in to the horizontal that it makes it very, very hard for us to figure out which is the vertical. So this week, uh, we're going we're gonna to dive in a little bit more, and now it's a two-week series, so we can't really like unpack a whole like you know, life, life application series where we, you know, take every aspect of life. But what we can do is we can chart some big principles. And so last week we charted the, the big principle, which was which way is up. Uh, if you, some of you were last week, you, you remember that, uh, you know, we talked about how we can get caught in the wash of back and forth and we lose our, our perspective on which way is up. This week we're going to look at some key principles to help us figure out which way is forward. Because if we don't have a, a, a a pure bearing on which way is up. It makes it really, really hard for us to determine which way we should be going forward and whether or not that way that we're going forward is good. So we're going to dig into that a little bit this week. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So if you brought your Bibles with you and, and you want to uh, turn there, go ahead, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, it'll also be up here on the screen for you. And uh, if, you, if you have your phone or your uh, tablet with you or what have you, you can also download the Uversion app and uh, just swipe and, and get your way there. Uh, so 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going we're gonna to jump right in this week to what Paul is saying to Timothy. Because, uh, you know, last week I gave you a nice big long illustration. This week I think we just need to get right into to Paul's encouragement. And that's because Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy's a young leader. And he's ministering in a pagan community. And so Paul is writing some encouragement to Timothy to say, hey, Timothy, for you as a young leader, here's some things to keep your eyes fixed on what is good, to not get caught in the sideways chatter of all the ideologies around you, and keep your bearings so that you can, you can accomplish the tasks that God has set out in front of you. So 2 Timothy 4, we're just going to hit verses 1 and 2 to start us off. And I'm telling you to turn there, and I didn't. You know, one of those, one of those, it's one of those moments where, you know, as a, as a pastor, you kind of get your habits, and one of my habits is always to put the, my notes in the page, and so you saw where I put them. <laughs> really helped myself out this morning. <laughs> Second Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now, it's not captured in the NIV translation of the Bible, when Paul says, you know, in view of, of basically God and everything that God has done, in view of all of that, I give you a solemn charge. Here it just says, I charge you. But, it, but the, word, the language is actually, I give you a solemn charge. And the Greek word that he uses there, I'm not going to pronounce it for you because you're going to forget it like 30 seconds later anyway. If you're really curious, I can, 
you know, pronounce it after the service. But the, the Greek word he uses is one that's like somebody testifying in court. And it carries the idea or it carries the weight of I'm charging you. I am being a witness in front of God and in front of everything that God has done. I'm being a witness to you, Timothy, of what you need to do. Do you follow that? So it carries this idea that, Timothy, you need to do this because life and death are literally connected to this. This is, this is a God thing, Timothy. And if you neglect this, life and death hang in the balance for you and for those you are charged to lead. Now, when we first look at that, we might say, well, okay, so that's Timothy. Well, he's, you know, he, he's, he's supposed to be a pastor, right? So, so that's for leaders. That's only for leaders. Do you know the Bible says that we are the priesthood of all believers? We are the priesthood of all believers. So what Timothy is in position for is his particular giftedness and skill to lead. That, that doesn't mean that he is the only one who has this charge. Because the charge is to preach the word in season and out of season. Now granted, there may be those of us who are better at speaking than others. But preaching is not just a matter of speaking. Preaching is both word and example. And the charge comes to all of us. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's here. Because one of the, when, when they put all this together and said, you know, this, we agree, when the, when the, the Bible was canonized, and we agree that these are, these are commands, these are promises that are for all people in all places at all times. The reason it's in here is not because it's just for Timothy. Yes, it applies to leaders, but it also applies to the priesthood of all believers. We are to preach the word in season and out of season. Ready to be ready to do that. And already, you know, like I, I can just kind of sense in the room like, oh, man. And some of your faces, you know, some of you are like, okay, yeah, got it. But what's the hardest thing about preaching the word? Go ahead, you can talk back. What? Composition. So putting it together how you want to say it? Opposition. Oh, opposition. Opposition. So resistance, people who don't want to receive it, okay? What else? Having the boldness to speak. Okay, what else? Okay, so having the example to back up your words. What was it over here? Having the right words. Yeah, and, 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 and so let's pull way back. In order to preach it, you have to know it. There you go. We've got to know it. You've got to know it. You can't preach it if you don't know it. And when Paul solemnly charges Timothy... To preach the word, he says, do this in season and out of season. You need to be ready. So in order to be ready, he has to know it. But there's another piece of this that, that's going on here, and this sort of brings us to our first point. Uh, do you know that people, uh, let me share some statistics with you. As far as remembering, because if we're going to know the word, we have to remember it, right? And one of the hardest things is recall. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't memorize in the way that, that like, that they teach you to memorize in school. Like, you just, memorizing you do in school is like over and over and over. You just say it, say it, say it, say it, say it, say it. I can remember things that way, but it's very short term. Very, very short term. When I, when I do theater and I'm trying to remember lines, you know, for a character, very short term. But once we've done a couple shows, 
it's stuck because I'm enacting the character. I'm playing it out. When I read scripture and I try to memorize it, if I just flat read it and try to memorize it, it doesn't work. There has to be some connection for me in order to experience it and remember it. And that goes along with human nature. So some of you may be a real whiz, maybe have an identic memory where you see it once and it's just there forever. And, you know, we, we're grateful for you, Sherlock's, who have your mind palace that everything just gets, you know, stuck up there. But, and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, go, go and watch Sherlock, the, the series, uh, carefully. But, so let me share the statistics with you. We remember 10% of what we read. 10% of what we read. Okay? Does that sound about accurate for most of us? 10% of what we read, okay. We remember 20% of what we hear, especially if the person repeats themselves. We remember 20% of what we hear. We remember 30% of what we see. Am I still, are we still in the ballpark? Everybody still, okay. Uh, we remember 50% of what we see and hear. Well, that makes sense. You know, you can remember people's posts on Facebook when they put a picture up, but you can't remember what the text said, right? I mean, there's sometimes the picture, what you see and what you hear together are together, or help really drive that home, or if somebody reads it to you. We remember 70% of what we discuss with others. So imagine, think about those times when you've actually sat down with people and you've talked about a topic. You can remember that conversation for a long time, can't you? Because you're experiencing it with them. You're wrestling through the conversation with them. We remember 80% of what we personally experience. Now, am I wrong in saying that the vast majority of teaching and the vast majority of educational experiences that we have have probably stopped there? Is that fair? We go from see, hear, see, and hear, discuss a little, and experience. And so generally, we retain about 80% of what we experience. Guess how much we retain when we teach others? 95%. We retain 95% of what we teach others. So whether Paul knew it or not, it's wisdom, and it's God's wisdom coming through him to Timothy, a young leader, to say, preach the word in season and out. Teach others. Teach others. Do you know that piano students who are taking lessons, when they take on their own student, even as they're still learning, they grow, here's the word, exponentially, they grow exponentially because they are constantly breaking down the basics of the principles they've already learned to teach someone else and becoming more proficient in it because the more they practice it, the more they understand it, the more they can teach it to somebody who's learning under them. And at the same time, it's laying a foundation for all that they're learning from their teacher. So that this is, this is rote, this becomes natural for them, what they're teaching, and they can take the next level with the person teaching them. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So certainly when Paul says to Timothy, look, you need to be ready to preach in season and out of season because this is our point. We maximize our learning by teaching others. We maximize our learning. So for Timothy as a young leader, 
Paul knows if he engages in teaching others, and it doesn't just become, his faith isn't just a mental exercise, and his leadership isn't just a mental exercise or an organizational exercise, but he's actually teaching others, it will ground him in ways that it doesn't matter what happens in the culture. It doesn't matter what happens with all the paganism around him. He's going to be able to see the road forward, and so will those who are journeying with him. So when we think about the way forward and we're checking our vertical, the first thing we have to check on our vertical is, do we know? And are we teaching what we know? If not, do we really know what we think we know? Think about that one later. All right. Maximum learning comes when we are teaching others. When we break something down and we're able to understand it and pass it on to others, it, it just galvanizes it in our hearts and it galvanizes it in our experience and we're able to retain all of that. So then the second point starts right off of there. And some of you who saw me come in this morning, you're wondering, you know, what cosmic accident I had with kite string um, after last week's illustration. This is not a personal accident, just so you know. This, and we're going to see if I can get this to, to hold here. This is what we call, anybody know? A plumb bob or a plumb line. Get up on there. <laughs> Can be taught. There we go. So what's the purpose of a plumb line? What's the purpose of a plumb line? Find vertical. Why do we need to find vertical? Go ahead. I'm just checking his. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I told you last week and you weren't here. So that's amazing that you know that. Your, uh, your, your psycho, psycho, psycho powers, your psych, psychic powers are working really well. <laughs> no, so anybody in construction? Nobody? Say again? So we need a straight line, but if, so, so let's say we're in construction. Why do we need a straight line? So you, can have, yep, so you can have square walls and a square foundation. If you don't know where the vertical is, you may be building off the hill, and the hill may not be square, so then your building is going to lean. And if your building is leaning, how much is it going to take for it to fall down? Not much, because the way we build things, we build things to be strong on a right angle and stand vertical. We don't build things to, to stand... Now, uh, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright may have built some things that were a little bit off kilter, and he actually engineered it that way. But most of the time when we're building, we need plumb because we need to know what the true vertical is so that everything else we can line up is square to it, whether it's going to also be vertical or whether it's going to be parallel. We know how our foundation should lay based on where vertical is. We know how. So let's bring this into our experience. If I take you and I put you here and I take your spouse or your kids or your significant other and I put them here and this plumb line represents perfect relationship. In order for the two of you to have perfect relationship, what has to happen? 
Come on, you can talk louder. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it would be helpful if you're standing up. So, yes. yes. We won't go any farther into that one. <laughs> Making things in decency and proper order there. Uh, <laughs> well, I could dig, dig myself a hole there. Uh, so... Uh, but, but if you and your spouse or you and your loved ones or you and your kids are standing on either side of this, and this is perfect relationship, what do you need to do to have a perfect relationship? You have to come together because you could come together over here, right? Because what normally happens is this person feels they're right, this person feels they're right, and we don't worry about this. We reach around and we try to yank them over to our side, right? So that then we feel better about ourselves and we say, everything's fine now, <laughs> right? Meanwhile, our spouse or other person is going, oh, I knew it. They never listen. And the same happens when the opposite happens, right? In order for us to have perfect relationship, we have to do what? We have to come together. If this is the standard of perfect relationship, we have to leave our standard and move towards the standard. Now let's plug that into where our culture is. Okay, I'm going here gently, going here gently. So you got your alt-right, the uh, detestable racist happenings that are going on in our culture, right? Over here. We've got Antifa over here. Maybe we have BLM back there. We've got other people in the culture over there. We've got politicians over there. We've got all, let's say, let's say we could plot everybody in this room based on your thoughts, your perspectives of what is good and right and true. Let's say we could plot every one of us around this room and that this is God's standard for perfect relationship. Now, if we're all going to get along, What's got to happen? Do we have to come together? Because we can come together in any one of the camps, right? That doesn't mean we're doing good. Give me more. We've got to come together around the standard. So in order for us to move forward as a people in our relationships, we've got to come to the standard. In order for us to move forward as a culture with all the chaos that's going on, we've got to come to the standard. If I'm coming to the standard, what do I have to sacrifice? My standard, right? And for too long we have held on to our standard as if our standard is the only one. Instead of looking at the standard, the true vertical, there is nobody who is a human being who is not guilty of standing on their own standard and forgetting to check the standard. Okay? It's a human race thing. We've been doing it for a long, long time. Long, long time. Brings us to our second principle. (laughs) 
delusion is not discernment. Look at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, For the time will come when men will not put up with the sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge the duties of your ministry. This is why people reject God. Do you understand? This is why people reject God. Because when God presents a promise or a standard for us to live by, it's rarely, if ever, completely in my camp. It's rarely, if ever, completely in my comfort zone. I would say 99.9% of the time, even if I'm right here, he's still right there. And I still have to adjust. People reject God because when they look at God, they say either I don't believe that, which means I choose to keep my standard because I believe my experience and my standard, or I don't want that. And so then they do, and I'm so glad some of you said come together because it was perfect. You perfectly illustrated. What we do when we reject God, we try to find all kinds of ways around. And we'll try to pull each other to the other side. And we'll say, see? See how it is over here? Isn't it good? Isn't it good? And the other person's like, well, yeah, I can sort of see your point, but I'm really uncomfortable. Because I also see all the problems that I saw from over there. I didn't have to come over here to see these problems face to face. Thanks for showing me the benefits. But there's problems. And the same happens when we pull somebody to our camp. And this is why the culture continues to argue and argue and argue over how we solve all of these cultural problems. Delusionment is not discernment. Gathering around us a bunch of people who will say the statistics and who will, who will bend the statistics and the data in the direction that they think is best doesn't mean we're right. And just rebelling against all the statistics doesn't mean you're right. Being an actor with a bachelor's in engineering who has delusions of saving the world doesn't mean you're right. There's one standard. And if we're going to come together, we've got to check the vertical. Because odds are, being human and all, we all have some adjustments to make. The question is, will we? 
Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, if you look ahead, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. There's a reason for that. That's essentially what Paul is saying to Timothy. Fix your eyes on the standard. Know, know him and know his promises. Know his teaching so well, Timothy, that you can teach others. Now, one more example with a plumb line, then I'm going to move on. Sometimes we get people in our culture who are way over here, right? And what they believe and what they think and how they live, but they can see the line. And they're describing the line. Well, you know what you ought to do? You ought to do that. Anybody met, met people like that? Come on. Come on. Anybody been that person? Come on. Let's, I mean, there are times we can see the standard, and we will beat people over the head with the standard, but we are unwilling to move ourselves towards the standard in a way that is helpful in their moving towards the standard. Do you understand that if we are going to be in community together and we're going to be in unity, we have to move towards, we have to move together. Elsewhere in scripture it says, keep the bond of unity. Okay, it says keep, it doesn't say find it. In other words, God is already perfectly unified. God already has unity. In his standards, in his promises, there is unity. The reason we're not unified is because we're not here. Or we keep saying to other people, hey. And all the while, we're totally missing the fact that although we can see the line, we're not on the line. Or we're doing one of these. <laughs> we're, we're like, we've got a toe on the line, and we're reaching as far away to get, like, I've still got a toe on the line. That means I can do this, right? Yeah, yeah how, many, how, many, how many do that like, as soon as you leave here? How many do that in the way you, 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 you diet? Um, you know, I got, toe, I got toe on the line, but, but, but Sweet Frog just sent me a coupon. The other reason why people don't like the line is because it takes work. It takes work to stay on the line. It takes work to adjust to God's standard. We have to continuously be willing to admit where we're wrong. How many of you have met people who just, they're just they love to admit they're wrong? <laughs> Nobody. We don't. We have to continuously, and not because we're wrong to somebody else, because that can be dangerous. That can be, you know, if we're always wrong to somebody else and they're always right, that's dangerous. That's not good. That's not healthy. That starts codependency and all kinds of craziness. But if we as human beings can agree that God is God and I'm not, his standard is right, and whatever illusion of his standard I'm trying to work out right now because of my imperfect human nature, I have trouble staying on the line. If I can constantly admit that, then I'm primed to be able to adjust. But if I won't admit that, I might as well just pour cement right around my feet because I'm going to find more and more excuses why I can't adjust. 
believe me, if God has a standard that he's called us to, his spirit and his power will give us the ability to get there. There is no I can't when it comes to God's standards. But, you know, people look at that and they say, well, it doesn't sound like any fun. It doesn't sound like any fun. And so we go back to the delusion. You know, but this sounds fun. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me that coffee is good for me. Tell me that chocolate makes my world wonderful. That I can justify the $100 pound block of chocolate I just bought and I eat in front of the TV every night. (laughs) Tell me what I want to hear. Doesn't sound like any fun. The problem we have as the human race is we have allowed the horizontal chatter to define our sense of fun. We've allowed our horizontal to define. I mean, so those of you who are in high school, you remember in high school when what was fun was to try and go out and party? Now, why was it fun? Well, there's a little bit of danger, a little bit of getting away with something, a little bit of doing something the adults do that we're not allowed to do, but we get to do it. There's a little bit of warmth from the alcohol. There's a little bit of, 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 of humor and laughing because of everybody who acts like an idiot when they're drunk. The horizontal defined our sense of fun. Instead of understanding, we can have way more in freedom. You can have way more when there's no baggage the next morning. We don't have to clean the bathroom the next morning. We don't have to dry out in a detox center the next morning. We don't have to have an intervention by our family the next morning or the next month. We don't have to spend time in jail. Because somehow we learned that being forceful when we're we're drunk is okay. We don't have to wind up in the hospital and take two months to heal. See, the world took captive fun. It stole fun. We need to steal it back. We need to steal it back and our kids and show one another that when we come together here, We can have awesome experiences with no baggage. Awesome experiences with no baggage. I'll tell you, some of the times I have laughed the hardest have been among friends where nobody's being crass, nobody's being stupid, you know, nobody's drunk off their gourd. We've just sat around and we've talked about life and and we've been honest about our own faults. Now, and now, don't, before you get too far down, it's like not a counseling session. We're like, oh, man, you know, I'm just so bad. You know? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about being people together, enjoying each other's personalities, enjoying what we bring to the table. I never laughed so hard in my life because inevitably there's just that moment where somebody says something, and it's hilarious, and you all just crack up laughing, and you laugh, and you laugh till your sides hurt, and your belly hurts, and you can't breathe, and you're crying and you're like, please stop, I can't have any more fun or I'm going to die. You know, I just, you know. We need to take back 
fun. And that's as far as I'm going to go on that one. Because we need to get to our last tip for this morning. I started into it when he says to Timothy, keep your head, Timothy, in all situations. Right? Keep your head to... Now tell me, is that honest? Honestly, is that easy to do? No, no, okay. I can, you know, I can tell you, I, I lose my head at least 15 times a day, probably more. Uh, you know, it's, it's a wonder it's still on my shoulders from time to time. But he says, keep your head in all situations. Keep your head in all situations. And then his next thing is what? What does it say? Endure what? Endure afflictions, endure suffering, endure hardship. We really don't like doing that. And that's another reason why we push away from the standard, because it's hard to stay there, and the world pushes back. Let me read the rest of the verses to you. So keep your head in all situations, Timothy. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Bless you. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. This is later in Paul's ministry. He's likely in prison at Rome at this point, and, and he's at the end of his life. And he's writing this letter to Timothy. So this is a handoff letter. He says, I've finished the race, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now we read, if we just read that second part, we might think that Paul is being a little bit arrogant in his successes. But he's being a true mentor to Timothy. I want to submit it to, the, to you that way. He's being a true mentor to Timothy. He's truly teaching Timothy because as he's talking to Timothy about keeping his head in all circumstances, he says, remember what I taught you. Remember, I've done this by example, Timothy. You've seen me do it. Keep your head in all circumstances. Endure hardship. I think Paul endured quite a bit of hardship. I mean, when you read what Paul went through, he endured hardship. And he kept his head in all situations. He discharged all the duties of his ministry. Even to the point of being thrown in jail multiple times, being stoned and thought dead and drug outside the city and God lifted him back up and he walked back into the city and went on to the next place. I mean, talk about somebody who endured hardship. He says, Timothy, I've set an example. I've set an example. But notice when he says, I've set an example, he's not saying... Look at me. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at the standard you're called to. And then do just like I did. Chase Jesus. See, we work for the Lord and we, we serve others in the name of the Lord. We love in the presence of the Lord. We, we, we teach the Lord to others. We live and we move and have our, have our being in the Lord. So that we can move forward. So that we can grow forward. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, look man. All I've done my whole life is chase God. And his standard. 
You've seen me adjust over and over again. Timothy, do the same. Do the same. Because Timothy, if you'll do that, if you'll do that, you will finish the race well. You'll be in line with God's promises. That's our final point. Your head is Jesus, not Google. My head is Jesus, not Google. And I know that sounds silly. It really does. But it is so important for us to remind ourselves daily, 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 daily. If we are going to take a cue on how we should live or what we should do, we should consult God first. I mean, I, I, so whenever anything happens in our house and there's, there's this, uh, you know, so there's a question like, well, what do we do about that? Well, pull up the phone, pull up Google. What do you do when the water pump goes out on your Jeep? Oh, look, six videos on how to fix it. Sweet. Boop. We watch the video. Oh, I can do that now. Now, some of us are, are, are foolish enough to try. <laughs> some of us are wise enough to call a mechanic. But you see what I mean? We, we, we will go and we will consult Google because there's so much information out there. There's so much at our fingertips. How many of you have gone to WebMD when you've had a sniffle and you found out that you're dying? I mean, you just, you have gone to, and you, you, you know, you read the symptoms. You know, you could be this, this, this. You, you know, you have like 17,000 diseases and you're dying all at the same time because you have a runny nose. I mean, it's, that is the risk, and I'm exaggerating, but that is the risk of consulting the horizontal wash. And when we do that with our life, because this isn't just about a religious thing. It isn't just about a faith thing. When Timothy talk, or when Paul talks to Timothy, he's saying your whole life is equipped first by the word, by the standard. And if you know this so well, and you're teaching others in this, then all that horizontal stuff that's just garbage you'll see it more clearly. You'll be able to set it aside a lot more easily. And when you got your own garbage that you're creating, you'll probably have to get a lot more honest with yourself a lot quicker. And then it's on your conscience whether or not you do. So to bring it back together, we need to understand that we maximize our learning. I maximize my learning by teaching others. Delusion is not discernment. Hearing the voices around me doesn't necessarily mean they're right. Where I stand isn't necessarily right unless I'm perfectly aligned with God. And my head is Jesus. It's not Google. When you get to the end of your days and you're in a position that Paul was and you know the end is coming, could you say without a glimmer of arrogance, without a glimmer of hope, but actual knowledge that you left it all on the field, you did everything you were called to do, you, you gave everything you needed to give and say the way that Paul did, I've run the race. I've run the race. I finished. And now there's a crown. 
See, I don't think that was arrogance from Paul to Timothy. I think he's putting before Timothy, finish this way. Finish with a clear conscience that you've spent your whole life being as close to, if not directly in line with this standard, not reaching with a toe on it, out for other things and trying to get away with what you can get away with. Living life to the fullest inside of God's promises and his standards so that when you're done, not only have you had fun, but you leave here guilt-free. You leave here with nothing unfinished, no regrets, nothing unsaid, nothing undone. I just got a message this morning that one of my colleagues in Ohio uh, actually sat on the commission that credentials pastors and deals with moral failure and everything out there in, in, in Ohio when we were out there. And this, this older gentleman, his name was Rick, uh, he came to be credentialed by us. And he was part of another denomination, I won't tell you which one, uh, but he had gone to their seminary. And when he went to their seminary, because he was ministering within their congregation, within their church, um, when he'd gone to their seminary, the first day that he was there, they started teaching that the Bible is myth, that Jesus is one of many prophets, that as a pastor within that denomination, he has to be able to work alongside of imams and Buddhist priests and treat their doctrines as equally authoritative. And he said, he came to us broken. And he said, I, I get being loving. I get embracing people who don't see things the way that we do. But how can I say I believe in Jesus and then just mix all this other stuff in? Jesus makes room for everybody. But Jesus is the standard that we all have to adjust to. And he's like, I, 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 I can't. And so I'm coming to you saying, can I go to your seminary? Can I be credentialed by you? I'll never forget his passion and his brokenness because for him, now he's just a man and I know he had flaws and all that kind of stuff, so I don't want to lift him higher than what he is. But his passion led him in a direction where with a clear conscience he was able to serve. I got a message this morning that he just died. He's been in a long fight for his health. And you know, his wife... And those who learn from him, and friends and colleagues around him, we all know he finished well. He did. He finished human. He probably had lots of places he wasn't perfectly lined up, but he finished well. I want to ask you, since this is my, my last week in these two, this two-week series, I want to ask you to just consider, last week I asked you to consider, okay, where are we not in line with the vertical? This week I want, to, I want to ask you to consider, how do I move forward in a way that my eyes are set always on the standard, that I'm always aligning to the standard, even as I go forward? Because I submit to you, you cannot move forward if you're over here, if you're in some cul-de-sac. There is only one path and it lines up here because this is the key to access that road. And you can't get on that road if you are not in line with the key. If you're over here in some sort of cul-de-sac, you can't even see the road. You have to be lined up with the standard. So I challenge you, I encourage you, I invite you. What needs to be laid down?
where do you need to adjust so that we can walk this road together? And I don't just mean we exponential because whatever influence we have in the broader culture will invite others to do the same. So that we as a people can walk forward on God's road in God's kingdom. Not my kingdom, not yours, God's. So I leave that for you and there's some questions for you to talk through in small groups if you're connected to small groups. Uh, if not, get with one of the small groups and dig into those questions because we learn most when? Yeah, because you're only going to retain maybe 70% if you're sitting there talking in the groups, but at least that's a primer to get you ready to maybe teach it to somebody else. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I thank you, thank you, thank you that no matter how <laughs> confident any of us are in our life, none of us are God. I thank you for that. And I thank you, God, for the reminders daily that you're God and I'm not. Lord, as we look at the road ahead, as we try to function in a culture that is dysfunctional right now, would you help us to be people who keep our eyes on your standard, who draw together in love and grace, compassion and fellowship, and we're not given to dividing over arguments of who is right but we are simply committed to drawing near to your standard, speaking your standard, living your standard, and embracing others and bringing them to your standard so that we as a people can go together as brothers and sisters into the future that you have called us to be, the kingdom that you've just called us to live, so that one day, Lord, we can finish the race and we can say, we did it. Lord, we got it. We got it. Lead us by your Holy Spirit and your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name.